Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Thursday, January 2nd, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Over the last few days, I was away in Louisiana, and the news there was dominated by a story from one state over, Texas, but also from my home state, New York. In Texas, a gunman, stupid news word, these aren't centaurs or narwhals, they are men who choose to grab guns and hurt other people with them. But anyway, a gunman, as they say, killed two churchgoers before being felled by an arms instructor who was packing heat. What a triumph for Texas's new laws that allow concealed carry in church. Meanwhile, in Muncie, New York, a machete-wielding madman attacked a gathering at a rabbi's home for Hanukkah. The people there had no guns, neither did he, and therefore they had to wait until justice was served. Police tracked the suspect down and arrested him. Remarkable to me was how credulous the coverage was of the wisdom of Texas's gun laws. This from ABC News. This shooting only lasted a few seconds before a security guard and several armed citizens quickly intervened. Oh, with that's right. In fact, one man who said he had a relative inside the church at the time, he said he is thankful for so many good guys with guns. ABC at least quoting a citizen there. Fox News was simply putting the NRA's talking points into the mouth of an anchor. But first, a good guy with a gun is being praised for, for preventing a massacre in Texas. The hero stopping a gunman just seconds after he opened fire in a church killing two people. Local officials and the pastor saying the man saved countless lives. We can't prevent every incident. We can't prevent mental illness from, from occurring and we can't prevent every crazy person from pull, pulling a gun. This church is a model for that preparation. That last voice there was Ken Paxton, attorney general for Texas. Left unsaid in that framing is that Muncie, New York, good guys with a folding table and chair is chased off a bad guy with a machete. No one was reaching for the good guys with a gun, stopping bad guys without a gun being the preferable scenario for a vicious attack on worshipers. Even the clergy involved in these two attacks had different stances. Here is the pastor from the church in Texas. We lost two great men today. But it could have been a lot worse. And I'm thankful that our government has allowed us the opportunity to protect ourselves. Getting a lot less widespread attention was the rabbi from Muncie, New York, probably because he spoke mainly in Yiddish, but he did repeat his main message in English in this interview. 
could have been much worse had someone had a gun there. I'm, of course, grateful that a highly trained gun instructor was on the scene in Texas to prevent more people from getting shot. But the analogy that came to my mind was something like a society going overboard to praise the heroic efforts of a field medic who saved someone whose appendix burst as opposed to the society providing sufficient medical care to catch the appendix before it bursts. Or maybe something like if a lion escapes from a zoo. Sure, kudos to the game warden who subdues the lion. But we should prefer to live in a society where the zoos are secured. Or maybe, here's a thought, no lions in zoos at all. There are cultural differences between New York, where guns are seen as sources of violence and death, and Texas, where guns are seen as deliverers of violence and death that could possibly save you from other guns, which might deliver worse violence and more death. And that's, of course, if everything works perfectly, well, the kind of perfectly where some people have already been shot with guns. Perhaps I'm speaking from a cultural perspective. I am a New Yorker. I am not a Texan. Of course, New York had 772 gun fatalities in 2017. Texas had 3,513. Texas does have 50% higher population, but it also does have a gun fatality rate of 350% of New York's. But those are statistics and empirical evidence, and I know how we think. The only thing that stops a good guy with evidence is a bad guy with slogans. On the show today, from HUD to DUD, the candidacy of Julian Castro. He had some powerful moments on the campaign trail, just not enough to actually appeal to actual voters. But first, in our last show before Christmas, we brought you the podcasters from Zero Blog 30, I spent some extra time with Chaps and Kate talking about Chaps' role in the military dog handler. We're here to talk about that now. Kate Mannion and Uncle Chaps, or Matthew Cothran, are the hosts of the Zero Blog 30 podcast, where they discuss important issues to veterans and important issues to anyone interested in eavesdropping on veterans. Both served in the Marines where Kate was a corporal and Chaps was a Purple Heart recipient. He is a retired gunnery sergeant and a dog handler. And so that's where we went, straight to the dogs. And tell me about the dogs. Being a dog trainer? Yeah. Oh, it was the best job in the Marine Corps. I loved it. So I didn't even know it was an option when I joined to be a dog handler. And I graduated top of my class at MP school, and they said, do you want to be a dog handler? And I was like, well, what do we do? How long is MP school? Eight weeks? Think so how does it work? You do that. You do basic first. Basic, and then you go to Marine Combat Training, right? Which is about three weeks, uh-huh. and then you go on to MP school or whatever your follow-on your MOS is, school, whatever yeah. you're going to do, right? And then canine school was twelve weeks. Wow! And did you have dogs growing up? Yeah, I did, but I never taught them anything. And now I did it for almost a decade as a dog handler. And now my dog Gus is a massive Ridgeback, and he doesn't know the first trick. Or command. <laughs> yeah, it's <crazy>. the only <laughs> it's thing a lazy he knows. Civilian dog. The only yeah. thing he knows is lay down on your pillow, uh-huh. and he knows back up, and he knows you want to go outside. When you work with service dogs like that, is it a different relationship than a pet dog? How similar and how different? Yeah, it is very different because you establish a relationship, so you build that almost like a pet relationship where the dog you feed the dog, you give the dog water, so they know that good things come from you. And one of the biggest mischaracterations of being a dog handler is that the dog outranks you. Like uh-huh. I don't know if people if you've heard yeah, that. Yeah, I've or heard not. that. Yeah, the dog is considered an officer or something. Military, it makes no sense because uh-huh. I tell the dog what to do. 
Not right. the other way around. I yeah. say, you go smell that. <laughs> go smell it now. He doesn't be like, uh, I'm going to go check out what I want to. You hang back here, devil dog. I'm going to go see. But do the dogs have a rank? No. 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 That would be, uh-huh. what, what would that even They're mean? classified as equipment. Like, so whenever you see a dog get an award, like whenever Al Baghdadi was killed. Yeah. And they brought the- Conan. Yeah, they, male or female? Oh, female. Lady. Okay. Definitely. So, so we brought, they go. brought in the lady dog and they wanted to give her an award. That's just for show. Like they don't get awards. It's yeah, like, like it's, it's giving, it's like a tank giving an a, award. a chair. Right. Yeah, like way to go, You're tank. doing your chairs. <laughs> yeah. right. Like whenever you think of military equipment, it, he always comes back to Yeah, chairs. I do. I'm a big chair guy. <laughs> it is cool though. We got to go to Lackland to the dog handling school for a video and I got to put on the full bite suit. And oh, I get, and then Chaps, it was like riding a bike for him. He put the sleeve on again, and this dog spit flying everywhere. And I'm like, oh, I couldn't look. I had to look away. And it was like 10 years hadn't passed. He just caught the dog, knew exactly what to do. And to me, it's so impressive to be able to do that stuff. It's really is, cool to watch him work. Is the dog used, what, 90% for bomb sniffing? Yeah. it's a, If a dog's deployed, it's going to be for, I mean, you will have... I mean, how difficult is it to be like locate a poppy field? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you don't need a dog. dog right? Right. Yeah. You, don't, yes. you don't need a I dog for Toto that. Toto did that. In oh, he did. Yes. Yeah. yeah, very sleepy job. <laughs> very true. Um, but if you're and in the airport, I mean, it's going to be ninety percent. Yeah, explosives. And do they usually use German shepherds or what breeds? German shepherds, Belgian Malinois. I love a Belgian Malinois. They smell great. Don't That's they? what Conan was. Yeah, yeah. Ah. is. Yes. <laughs> and. Did they change a rule about some of those dogs after their service is done being used as pets allowed to be adopted? Yeah, as pets I, now? I was actually involved in writing some well, of tell those. Me about that. So, whenever a lot of the dogs came back, many of them weren't adoptable because they used to be a lot more dogs were called dual purpose. So, in a like a civilian world, a dual purpose dog can both find explosives and their attack dogs. Mm-hmm. So, getting a dog into a family who's also trained to attack. It's not the best idea. It's not the best in the world. But since we've been doing so much Afghanistan and Iraq, and it's a lot more explosive, one of the things that's fallen to the wayside is a lot of the dogs don't have the ability to do the attack work because they want them to be around platoons of troops and things like that so they can be a little bit nicer. So a lot more dogs are getting adopted out now. Dogs are just like anything else, any other piece of equipment. You don't look at an M4 and be like, well, we've used it for three or four years we need to get a new one they use these dogs until they are almost done mm-hmm. until they are about to die and then it's time for them to go because if you do take the dog in you're responsible for all those vet cares no one wants to adopt a dog that's 10 years old has done multiple deployments that is going to bite probably a child and yeah. <laughs> they have hip dysplasia they have heart issues they probably have cancer because they've been around burn pits and stuff just like the troops have they have a litany but we of could issues. admit it with the dogs right yeah. that, we could admit yeah. that the yeah. burn pits cause the cancer with the <laughs> we dogs we call them right. health holes when it's the troops <laughs> right. that's uh, burn pits if it's the dogs but some of the dogs do are able to get adopted and now you have kennel masters who can perform the test of the like look at the dog the dog's disposition and say okay this dog is good to go it can be adopted so what out. went into writing that legislation or writing those rules well one of my friends his name is chris diaz he was killed in afghanistan and his dog was two at the time two and a half and his parents wanted to adopt the dog the military still wants to use that dog because yeah. they have forty, fifty thousand dollars invested into the dog So we had to look at which is easier, like what's the right thing to do here? And the government eventually decided that if we can adopt it out, it doesn't put us in a bad position like our TO objective, 
then we can adopt these dogs out. And it was just talking to people to get that common sense decision made. If the dog needs to deploy again to Afghanistan, obviously the dog's staying in the unit. If you can have another dog and replace it before it becomes a problem for the unit, let's try to give the family the dog. And this would mostly be for people who've worked with dogs, dog handlers who've done Right. So any dog that gets like my dog, Saika, he got cancer as well. The dog that I was with when I was deployed. The very first phone call that they made was to me, like, do you want to adopt him? Mm-hmm. I decided no, that I didn't because I didn't want this dog that I had talked about so much to come in, form a relationship with my kids. Then I know this dog that saved my life died and it's the family pet at the same time. Yeah. I was just like, I'm not ready for that emotional commitment. Yeah. I would hope that some people wouldn't feel guilty and say yes when they should have make the decision. Yeah, you got to make tough no. decisions sometimes. But yeah. I think they know, too, there's so many people who want to adopt these dogs that, you know, Chap said, this isn't for me right now. But there's probably a line of people who are yeah, like, well, like I his, got next. Uh, his very I... next handler said yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, so will Conan, is Conan going back in service, do you know? She's already back in service, yeah. Do you think all the attention to Conan, not the controversy, the male-female, but all the attention and the outpouring, and even for the first time, our president accurately describing how a dog works, because he often has that problem with thinking right. they get fired or whatever. Right. Does fired that, like a dog, yeah. That's right. Do you think that's uh, a good and hopeful and heartening thing, or is that I, sort of a... Uh, go ahead. I don't want to interrupt. I wish it would have went to... That attention would have went to a male dog. Honestly, because, and it'll make sense in a second, because every lady dog in a kennel gets an enormous amount of attention Uh because every dog handler calls them mamas and immediately it's probably 80, 20% of female versus male, more males than females. So every time you walk by, hey, mama, what are you doing, girl? And then they all put their backs against the cage and get pet and the dog handlers love her. So she's out there getting the normal attention when it's probably Ricky Ricardo, the dog that needs to get a little bit more (laughs) attention because he's feeling bad about himself. Can I ask why do you, Ricky Ricardo, just another TV famous? I TV actually person? had a dog named Ricky in Okinawa. <laughs> we we would do the Ricky Ricardo voice. Yeah, I I do Ricky Ricardo jokes when I'm not talking about chairs. I see. Yeah, those are your, <laughs> those are his two big things. Yeah. He's got that famous fifty. His first half hour comedy special was on chairs, and then he moved to the, the famous dog humor, the Ricky Ricardo as a dog humor. Kate Mannion and Uncle Chaps are the hosts of Zero Blog Thirty on the Barstool Podcast Network. A great insight and whatever the ear version is, ear sight, into how the military, former military, thinks about the military and the world. Thank you, guys. Thank Thank you. you. And now the spiel. Julian is Thrulian. The presidential campaign of Julian Castro came to an end today when the former HUD secretary and mayor of San Antonio announced that it was no longer plausible to mount a presidential campaign, what with his low polling numbers and poor fundraising. As with every candidate who has ever bowed out, the fault was laid at the feet of the system. Castro took out ads in Iowa, blaming Iowa for being the first to vote. Surprisingly, this did not provide the rocket ship-like acceleration in the Des Moines Register poll that his campaign sorely needed. He criticized the DNC for excluding candidates like him, or specifically him, from the debate stage. This from an interview with David Gurr on MSNBC. You have these thresholds in place, and then folks either make the debate or they don't. If you don't make the debate, then you know MSNBC, CNN... All of the other 
uh, media out there are a little less likely to actually give you airtime because they're responding to the polls. And so it's this media and political ecosystem that starts winnowing down the field. There is a problem with this critique of the DNC, which, by the way, is headed by Tom Perez, who has aided mightily in getting that position by Joaquin Castro, Julian's brother. But the problem is that the winnowing of the field isn't the bug. It is the feature. The remit of the DNC is to set up debates and forums to narrow the field down. If the criticism of the DNC is that they narrowed the field down, well, that's like criticizing figure skating judges for being too judgmental. Now, if you want to say that the problem with the DNC isn't that they winnowed, but how they winnowed, well, that would be something. But it is not that easy a case to make. It's tempting to make the case but it doesn't hold up to much scrutiny. I mean, it's tempting psychologically from the supporters or the actual person of Julian Castro. Some candidates, rival candidates, candidates who are still running, are said to be favored by the DNC and its processes because they have advantages. Those advantages being an appeal in the early voting states or there's this general idea that there is a moderate white guy advantage. I don't know. I can't prove that there is. There might be. I do live in America. I know who's been president and who's often the candidate. But it's hard to nail down to really prove an actual advantage conferred to middle-of-the-road white guys. And even if there were, think about it like this, because we're always told that Pete Buttigieg is the recipient of that advantage. Well, what about Tim Ryan, John Delaney, Eric Swalwell, Michael Bennett, John Hickenlooper, Steve Bullock, Jay Inslee, Seth Moulton? And also not so moderate white guys, Better O'Rourke and Bill de Blasio. Even if there was an advantage or a slot for a middle-of-the-road white guy, you know, Buttigieg did something to earn that slot. What all of those failed candidates who I have mentioned have in common, and Bennett is still running, I should say, but what they have in common is a characteristic that Julian Castro also shared, which is this a failure to connect to voters. And if the premise is that Buttigieg is only having some success due to race and gender, you have to look at the growing funeral pyre of expired Caucasians with XY chromosomes and ask, is it really an unfair racialized process? And even if it is, is it because the process is undemocratic or because it is democratic in the sense that a majority of Democratic voters are white, not just Iowa or New Hampshire Democratic voters. Democratic voters overall are majority white. I do think politics are sexist because America is sexist. And there are a lot of ways that female candidates are punished. But that didn't hurt Castro. I think it's quite plausible in America that there's a lot of lingering racism or perhaps even, and this has been pointed out, the perception that other people are racist, and this will affect the all-important electability consideration. But again, that is hard to prove. What is not hard to prove is that some candidates connected with voters and some did not. And that's because of a lot of reasons, but the primary one rests with the player, not the game. If you're a believer that Castro was unfairly punished on his way to the nomination because of race, well then, How do you explain the relative success of Andrew Yang? He's a person of color, like Castro. He's a child of immigrants, like Castro. Unlike Castro, he started off with much less experience, many fewer contacts, less staff, less momentum. He didn't have the keynote speaker slot 
in a past Democratic National Convention. He didn't have as much establishment endorsements or ability to get media coverage. In fact, the Asian American population in America is about 4%. That, by the way, includes South Asians and East Asians. The Latino population among voters is four times that. So in a sense, in that sense, Castro should have an advantage over Yang. The truth is, Andrew Yang just had a message or delivered a message. So the way he delivered it was important and what the message was, that was important too. It connected with voters a lot more than Julian Castro did. And because of that, Yang is on the debate stage and Julian Castro is not. Now, Castro is right when he claims that not being on the debate stage makes winning pretty much an impossibility. But that assertion is complicated by the fact that no candidate hurt himself or herself more this cycle by a poor debate performance than Julian Castro did when he went after Joe Biden. But the difference between what I support and what you support, Vice President Biden, is that you require them to opt in. And I would not require them to opt in. They would automatically be enrolled. They wouldn't have to buy in. That's a big difference because Barack Obama's vision was not to leave 10 million people uncovered. He wanted every single person in this country covered. My plan would do that. Your plan would not. They do not have to buy in. They do not have to buy in. You just said that. You just said that two minutes ago. You just said two minutes ago that they would have to buy in. You said they would have to buy in. Have to buy in if she qualifies. Are, are you forgetting what you said two minutes ago? Are you forgetting already what you said just two minutes ago? The problem was Castro was wrong on the point and mean on the tone. I mean, if his argument had nailed the point, I would defend him for taking whatever tone he wanted to with Biden. But the fact is, Castro mischaracterized Biden's plan and was a little bit cruel in how he phrased his objection. And since Castro was only at 1% or 2%, when that went down, he needed to capitalize and create a big moment, not to slip from a bungled attack. I want to say this. Julian Castro is smart. Julian Castro had a command of the issues. Julian Castro has a compelling way of speaking about the policies that are really important to him. That said, I don't think the policies that are really important to him, like decriminalization at the border or a quick transition to single payer, was necessarily what voters were looking for. Today, all of Castro's former opponents have made public statements praising him. That is just good politics. Some pundits have done the same. Esquire's Charlie Pierce writes, Julian Castro's departure should make the Democratic Party wonder about how it chooses its candidates and it should make the country in general melancholy about the state of affairs as the election season begins. A couple points. The Democratic Party does not choose its candidates. The Democratic voters choose their candidates. And I think the country would be fairly melancholy even if Julian Castro was polling at, I don't know, 6 or 7%. David Rothkoff, host of the Deep State Radio podcast and Professor Johns Hopkins, tweeted, The Dem field is dramatically weaker without Harris, meaning Kamala Harris, or Castro. Weaker? How? Cumulatively or per capita? Castro had almost no support. That is not a sign of strength. Castro wasn't setting the agenda. He wasn't introducing issues that other candidates simply couldn't ignore. That's not a sign of strength. He wasn't really making anyone up their game appreciably. It's true that a more diverse field, ethnically diverse field, would be good. And it's also true that a primary works best when it's a hothouse of ideas and policies that challenge each candidate to be their best. But Castro or Kamala Harris weren't providing that. I mean, no more than Jay Inslee was. And it's not like there are no costs to having 10 candidates on a debate stage instead of seven or eight, or as was the case early on, 20 over two nights. 
Under these circumstances, it's hard for any ideas to be seriously contemplated. Bemoaning the passing of a candidate from the stage comes at little or no cost to the individual bemoaner. Who would object to some nice words eulogizing the candidacy of a good public servant? Apparently, I would. Still, it is simply not the case that it is so sad that we couldn't have heard from more candidates like Harris, Bullock, O'Rourke, Ryan, de Blasio, Gillibrand, Moulton, Inslee, Hickenlooper, Swalwell, and now Castro. The Democratic primary is ultimately a choice, not a buffet. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader produced the gist. There is a common misperception that producers outrank hosts. In fact, they're a different species and are encouraged to treat each other as equipment. The gist. The saddest thing about Julian Castro declining to run is that he can't grow a post-candidacy beard like Better O'Rourke because his twin brother, Joaquin, already beat him to it. Umpuru depuru dupuru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>